0: It's 2 p.m. on the 1st of May, 1718. A small fleet of ships lie at anchor at Spithead in the Solent on the south coast of England. For the past five days, strong winds have delayed their departure. But today, the wind is set fair. On the deck of the Delicia, The largest of the four merchant men in the squadron, Captain Woods Rogers, is impatient to be on his way. He raises his eyeglass and looks across to the Milford, one of the three naval vessels which will accompany their voyage. He sees a flag hoisted and his heart leaps. It is the signal he has been waiting for. The order for the fleet to weigh anchor. Rogers shouts out a command. In response, four sailors break into a shanty as they begin winding in the anchor cable. As he feels the Delicia get underway, Rogers can't keep a smile of elation from his lips. But the thought of what lies ahead, as well as the memory of his last great expedition, turns his expression to one of grim determination. Woods Rogers is around 40 years old. He's an experienced mariner, one of an elite band of sea captains to have circumnavigated the globe. Their feet took its toll on him. He still limps from the giant splinter that skewered his heel while under fire from a Spanish galleon. As he feels the tingle of salt spray on his face, he's also reminded of the permanent scar he bears from the musket ball That ripped apart his jaw. But whatever the rigors of his previous voyage, Rogers knows that this will be the most challenging mission of his action-packed life so far. They're bound for Nassau, on the island of New Providence in the Bahamas. He is backed by a group of powerful merchants. In his pocket is a commission to the post of Lieutenant Governor which was his great honor to receive personally from King George at Hampton Court Palace. Much is at stake. Rogers has invested heavily in the venture. He stands to lose everything if it fails. He is also responsible for the lives of the 150 settlers who will try and cultivate the wild territory into a civilized domain. But Rogers knows the real threat they face comes from his primary mission. For he isn't just setting out to establish a colony. He has been commanded to extinguish a persistent and growing threat. One that the Empire will no longer tolerate. Pirates. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates. The show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the Black Flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonnie, and Mary Read. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the Seven Seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. By 1718, Woods Rogers is a celebrity in Britain, famous for his daring exploits as a privateer during the war against Spain. But beneath his fine clothes and superior attitude, this veteran sea captain must have been feeling more than a little apprehensive. Yes, he's achieved fame, but the fortune to go with it has so far eluded him. In fact, he's on the verge of bankruptcy. For him, This mission is a huge gamble. Everything he has is tied up in it. If he succeeds in ridding the region of piracy, he will be hailed as the saviour of the Caribbean. And he can expect more than just the gratitude of the colonies. He will be spectacularly enriched. So who is Woods Rogers? And how did he come to be appointed governor of the Bahamas, not to mention the scourge of the pirates? Colin Woodard is a journalist and author of The Republic of Pirates.
1: Woods Rogers was the son of a successful West Country merchant captain. He grew up in Poole in County Dorset. His father was involved in what was then the big, vigorous, cutting-edge commercial operation you could do from England which was to sail across the North Atlantic in pursuit of codfish. Uh, Cod was an enormously important commodity back then. Large fortunes could be made, and when Rogers was relatively young, they had actually moved from Poole, which is on the English Channel, over to the Bristol, the great West Country Ocean port, from which expeditions to the Americas began and were headquartered. So he was born into that, probably sailed with his father across the Atlantic, perhaps multiple times to uh, be involved in the collection of salt cod and bringing it back to port.
0: The family is well-to-do and well-connected. His father builds a house in a prestigious new development in Queen Square. A friend and neighbor is William Whetstone, who reaches the rank of rear admiral in the Royal Navy and is knighted for his services. In 1705, in his mid-twenties, Woods Rogers marries Sir William's daughter, Sarah. Through his marriage, he becomes a freeman of the city of Bristol. At around the same time, his own father dies at sea, and so Woods Rogers can be under no illusions about the dangers, as well as the rewards, of a mariner's life.
1: Being a sailor, particularly a long distance sailor, was an incredibly dangerous occupation. Navigation was sometimes an uncertain prospect. You're slowly running out of any kind of fresh vegetables or foods. You're not in the best shape to be resisting disease. And then you have all of the dangers of being on a ship. Barrels break free and roll around and cut off hands and fingers and legs and rigging breaks and collapses onto people. And then on top of that, if you're doing so in time of war, you have a chance of being killed in combat.
0: And by 1708, England is indeed at war with both Spain and France. But for an enterprising young man like Woods Rogers, war is also a time of opportunity. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates, the hunt for Captain Kidd, and how he changed piracy forever.
2: The war of Spanish succession was a good time for mariners. So for one, you have a lot of people who had either sailed in the Royal Navy or with merchant ships being hired as privateers. And these were people with what's called a letter of mark, and they were allowed to attack specific enemy ships and could keep about 80% of all the loot from the ship as their payment. And they would bring this back home.
1: Woods Rogers ended up extending his ambitions far beyond any other privateer. He actually organized with his connections and his family's connections and the like, the construction of two frigate-class ocean-going vessels, brand new ones, and the crewing of them with hundreds of crewmen and enormous amount of supplies to do something completely audacious, to circumnavigate the planet at a time when few people had done so.
0: It is an extraordinarily ambitious plan only a handful of voyages had ever succeeded in sailing around the world. It's also incredibly dangerous. They'll have to cross countless miles of hostile ocean, battling storms, sickness and starvation. And to what purpose? Their goal is to capture a Spanish treasure galleon sailing from Manila in the Philippines to Mexico. To most, this task alone would seem a suicide mission
1: the annual Pacific treasure ship, an enormous vessel called the Manila Galleon that began in Manila in the Philippines. Huge vessel, 2,000 tons, with hundreds and hundreds of men built out of tropical hardwoods like a floating fortress that would carry annually all the goodies the Spanish Empire had acquired in Asia and transfer them across the Pacific to unload them at Acapulco.
0: But Rogers is not like most men. In fact, If he succeeds in this, he will be only the second man to ever capture a Manila galleon, and the first in more than a hundred years. This is a plundering expedition, pure and simple, piracy in all but name. But in sponsoring piracy via privateering commissions, the state is also storing up problems for itself. Indeed, many of the pirates Rogers will face in his future career also started out as legal privateers just like himself. It takes a thief to catch a thief, as the saying goes. Speaking of which, a key member of the voyage is the seasoned navigator and explorer William Dampier. Something of a celebrity, his first book, A New Voyage Around the World, was published in 1697 to much acclaim. A man of many talents, Dampier had also once belonged to a famous group of buccaneers known as the South Sea Men. In other words, pirates. It's a mix of skills well suited to the current expedition. They will voyage in two new purpose-built ships, the 350-ton Duke and the slightly smaller 300-ton Duchess. Both ships are equipped for warfare, with as many as 62 guns between them. They also carry a serious array of small arms such as pistols, muskets, and cutlasses. As Woods Rogers puts it in his journal, we went out as private men of war and not as trading ships. On September 1st, he sets sail for Tenerife with a complement of 333 men. By his own account, the two ships are much fuller of men than usual for vessels of their burden. One can only imagine how cramped the conditions must have been on board. He notes, One third were foreigners from most nations. Several of Her Majesty's subjects on board were tinkers, tailors, haymakers, peddlers, fiddlers, etc. One negro and about ten boys. With this mixed gang we hoped to be well manned. The emphasis, perhaps, is on the word hoped. It isn't long before Rogers meets the first major challenge to his leadership. On September 11th, they intercept a Swedish frigate. Finding no contraband on board, Rogers gives the order to release her so they can be on their way. This provokes a minor mutiny, as some crewmen demand a more thorough search. Rogers has to assert his authority. He orders ten of his men to be clamped in irons, including the bosun. A second mutiny breaks out. And now Rogers raises the stakes by seizing the ringleader and having him flogged by one of his co-mutineers. It may seem like a severe measure, but it succeeds in restoring discipline. Though it's worth noting that one reason so many sailors went over to piracy was it a rebellion against the often brutal treatment they faced in respectable seafaring.
2: The vast majority of pirates claimed they entered piracy because of cruelty inflicted upon them by very cruel captains or leaders on merchant ships, naval ships, other official maritime positions. And this is why they left and felt they had no choice but to turn to piracy so they could have their own autonomy and have less violent conditions on the ship. All of this is different on a pirate ship. Everything gets distributed very equally. They're able to vote in and out any superior officer or captain due to ill-treatment or bad decisions.
0: Fortunately for Woods Rogers, these revolutionary democratic principles do not prevail on his ship. Though in fact, by the standards of the day, it could be argued that Rogers' treatment of the mutineers could have been worse.
1: It's very clear that he was thoughtful in his use of force. He wasn't one of these sadistic captains. He actually, when there's a mutiny against him, he is relatively benign, you know, instead of having them all hung, he whips a few of them and sends them back and tells them to behave in the future. He tries to lead on that expedition, not through sort of terror and fear, but towards mutual respect, which is commented on in those things. And his actions later on bear that out as well.
0: The way Rogers sees it, the success of the voyage depends on his ability to impose his will. They are a war, after all. As commander, he has to step up to the mark and make difficult decisions. He takes swift, decisive action to nip the mutiny in the bud. It's a test of character, and he passes it. Discipline is enforced and his authority restored. It's a lesson he will remember for the rest of his career. After voyaging down West Africa, they round the Cape Verde Islands and set off westward to the distant coast of Brazil, hidden somewhere beyond the horizon. It's like trying to hit a bullseye on a target 3,000 miles away. Just keeping the two ships together across the vast tracts of open sea is a challenge. But six weeks later, they make land. That was the easy part. From Brazil, they head south towards the treacherous waters around Cape Horn.
1: With the goal of going around the tip of South America through the Drake Passage with its hostile circumpolar storms, they go around Antarctica in a fury, the most powerful storms in the world, to weather that in sailing vessels around the Tierra del Fuego, and then to work their way northward up the entire Pacific coast of South America raiding Spanish settlements and the like in the Pacific Ocean, which was then known as the Spanish Lake, because nobody could get into the Pacific Ocean, right? Nobody in their right mind would try to go through the Drake Passage with those circumpolar storms. The Spanish didn't even bother guarding it.
0: The further south they reach, the colder it gets. The tailors sew warm clothes out of blankets to keep the men from freezing. Then, on January 5th, 1709, the weather takes a severe turn for the worse. The ship encounters a storm-force gale. Giant waves tower over the masts and bear down on the decks. On board the Duchess, sailors race to lower the main yard. But the storm takes hold of the sail, tossing it into the sea and pulling the ship sharply over. The Duchess takes on so much water, she's in danger of sinking. From the Duke, Rogers watches helplessly as his sister ship is turned about in the gale, a plaything of the elements. Back on the Duchess, the sailors manage to cut loose the sail that's dragging them down. But it's too late. The freezing Antarctic waters smash through the stern windows and rush into the ship. The First Lieutenant is thrown between decks. Weapons that are hanging up are flung through the air. One sword pierces a sailor's hammock. Fortunately, no one is in it. The icy seawater quickly floods through the ship's compartments, trapping dozens of men below deck. Eventually, the bulkhead of the main cabin gives way under the force of water, allowing the shivering men to scramble to safety. The Duchess, somehow still afloat, is driven on by the wind. In the early hours of the morning, they feel the storm abate. By a miracle, they haven't lost a single man. The ships continue south past Cape Horn, reaching latitude 61 degrees, 53 minutes on January 10th, 1709. It is the furthest south any European navigator has yet recorded. Relieved, the expedition heads north into the Pacific, where they hope to find their target, the Manila Galleon. They're lucky to be alive, but they're not in the clear yet, not by a long shot. In fact, their long sea voyage has been fostering a hidden danger, which now threatens the success of the mission. Scurvy.
1: You run out of fresh fruit and vegetables on a long distance voyage, and it's setting you up for major diseases, especially scurvy, which is caused by a lack of vitamin C, which actually causes all of the soft connecting tissues in your body to start falling apart teeth fall apart, you you start bruising. It's a terrible way to die. And it was very common on long distance sailing vessels. Some people had discovered, hey, if you bring limes or lemons, you can survive. That's where the term limey came from, from the Royal Navy's discovery that you could have limes survive quite some time and replenish them, and that people who drank the lime juice regularly didn't get scurvy. But that was still not widespread, particularly in this time period. So most of the crew would die of diseases.
0: The freezing weather also takes its toll on the men's health. By late January, four men have died from sickness. The priority now is to head with all speed for the Juan Fernandez Islands, 400 miles off the coast of Chile, due west of Santiago. There they can treat the sick with fresh food. Rogers knows that this will improve his men's chances of survival. But at Juan Fernandez, they find more than just the supplies they need. To their collective shock, they find a man or something like a man. In Woods Rogers' words, a man clothed in goat skins who looked wilder than the first owners of them. The man's name is Alexander Selkirk. Dr. Manishak Powell is a cultural historian and an authority on pirates.
2: Alexander Selkirk was marooned for telling his captain he didn't think the ship was safe to sail on. So Selkirk was dropped off on an island. He was rescued three years later by Woods Rogers, who was the famous privateer and pirate hunter. And the story of Selkirk became the basis for the story of Robinson Crusoe. And as it happened, Selkirk was right. The ship foundered and almost everybody died.
0: Funnily enough, William Dampier had sailed with Selkirk on that same ill-fated voyage. Whatever bad blood there may have been between them is now forgotten. On Dampier's recommendation, Selkirk joins the company as mate. On board, Selkirk tells the story of his four years on the desolate island. The first eight months were the toughest. To overcome his loneliness he busied himself building shelter. He taught himself to make fire and hunted wild goats drying their hides in the sun. Once When he rushed to the shore to greet a passing ship, he almost ran straight into the Spanish who had come to the island. Distraught, he had been forced to flee, climbing a tree to escape capture. One of the few items he had with him was a Bible. Rogers records with approval that Selkirk had employed himself in reading, singing psalms and praying, so that he said he was a better Christian while in this solitude than ever he was before or was afraid he should ever be again. Rogers uses the time at Juan Fernández to repair the ships. By March 1709, they are back at sea, patrolling for enemy shipping to intercept. They are rewarded on March 16th with the capture of a 16-ton Spanish merchant ship. Within a few weeks, they capture four more prize vessels, including the 500-ton Ascension. Aside from the cargo, they also take on hundreds of prisoners. Prisoners can be ransomed, but they also need to be fed, and the company's dwindling resources are becoming critical. Faced with the hostile shoreline of the Spanish Main, the only chance of resupplying is to attack a settlement on land. Off the coast of Ecuador, a target is decided upon, the city of Guayaquil. To encourage his men, Rogers promises each of them an equal share in the plunder. But before they carry out the raid, they are forced to engage a Spanish galleon that blocks their approach. Two plucky smaller boats break from Rogers' fleet and give chase. Rogers watches as the vessels come under heavy fire and are forced to retreat, badly damaged. It's fortunate only two men are killed. Tragically, one of those fatalities is Woods Rogers' youngest brother, Thomas, just 20 years old. As Rogers records in his journal, Thomas was shot through the head and instantly died to my unspeakable sorrow. Heartbroken as he is, Rogers buries his grief with his brother and renews his determination. Nothing can be allowed to get in the way of his mission. The fleet drops anchor, and Rogers leads ashore a force of around 200 men in small boats. Once on land, he reluctantly hands command over to the Captain of Marines, Thomas Dover. Dover is in fact one of the expedition's main investors, an affluent Bristol doctor, with no military experience whatsoever. Dover is uncertain and delays the attack giving time to the inhabitants of Guayaquil to evacuate much of the city's treasure into the surrounding jungle. By the time they finally take the town, the expedition find little more than some gold chains they get from shaking down a house full of aristocratic women. At one point, Rogers has to stop his men from ripping up the floors of a church to pilfer the bodies buried there. Rogers demands a ransom of 40,000 pieces of eight for the prisoners and for not setting fire to the city. But in the end, he has to settle for around half that. The Spanish, of course, are outraged. These are the actions of a criminal, a pirate, plain and simple. Rogers, however, feels justified. His mission is sanctioned by king and country. It's all a matter of perspective. In any case, with their supplies restocked and the prisoners released, Rogers is happy to leave the misery of Guayaquil behind him. Unfortunately, it seems Guayaquil isn't yet done with him. Within a week of leaving the city, more than 120 men on the Duke and Duchess fall ill. Rogers himself goes down with dysentery. At the same time, he also faces rumblings of discontent over the division of plunder from Guayaquil. Once again, he is forced to put down a mutiny. Sick and exhausted, Rogers just about asserts his command and holds the mission together. Pointedly he writes, if any sea captain thinks himself endowed with patience and industry, let him command a privateer They make for the Galapagos Islands to eat turtle meat and recuperate. Rogers now has six months to get his crews and ships fighting fit once more. Six months before he faces the greatest challenge of the voyage so far. The arrival of the Manila Galleon off the coast of Mexico.
1: They used to say, go west. What they meant was go forward. Find your own way. Make something out of nothing. It can be tempting to take it easy, but discovery doesn't wait. So this summer, see what it means to make the most of dawn, dusk, and every minute in between. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com.
0: November 2nd, 1709. Woods Rogers fleet takes up position off the Baja California Peninsula in Mexico. The ships fan out. All eyes strain for sails on the horizon. The waiting game begins. Days go by. The days turn into weeks. By mid-December, The Manila Galleon is almost a month late. On board the Duke, Rogers gives up hope of ever seeing it. Provisions are running low, hunger takes hold and Rogers knows you cannot lead men into battle on empty stomachs. At a council meeting on board the Duchess, the officers reluctantly decide to abandon the hunt for the treasure ship. They head for Cape San Lucas instead, to take on fresh water and supplies. Then, on the morning of December 21st, 1709, the lookout atop the Duke's masthead suddenly cries out. Sails! Rogers' pulse races. The ship is reckoned to be about seven leagues, or 21 miles, distant. Too far away to know for certain and the Duke is sitting in calm waters, unable to draw closer. Rogers dispatches a longboat to approach the unidentified vessel. Word comes back. As Rogers puts it in his journal, it was the ship we had so impatiently waited for and despaired of seeing her. It is the Manila Galleon. Excitement spreads throughout the crew, whatever prizes they have captured so far are dwarfed into insignificance by the unimaginable riches that the Spanish galleon holds. The greatest prize on the high seas is in sight. It is also the most dangerous.
2: They were practically impenetrable. They could have like 100 guns or 100 cannons and nobody could quite match them and no one was willing initially because it would just be absolutely devastating. And Spain was also absolutely ruthless against anyone who would try to attack them.
1: So a Manila galleon, that would be the ultimate prize. If any Englishman could go into the Spanish lake and capture one of those and bring it back, it would be a symbolic victory if nothing else.
0: The twisting hunger in their bellies is forgotten. A different kind of greed takes hold now. Visions of rubies, pearls and gold flash before the half-starved sailor's eyes. But the sea remains becalmed. The Duke is unable to give chase. Not only that, night is coming on quickly. Rogers takes decisive action and dispatches two boats to stay close to the galleon. The men on the boats light flares to indicate their position. Throughout the night, flashes of intense blue light pierce the darkness. Meanwhile, the crews get busy. This is not a night for sleeping. The Duke and Duchess prepare to attack at dawn. Guns are readied. Ammunition is placed in racks. Tins are filled with shrapnel ready for firing at the enemy. There's no more effective or bloodier way of bringing a man down. Sand is thrown down on the decks to soak up the blood and stop the men from slipping. As dawn breaks, Rogers is met by a welcome sight His ship is now within three miles of the Spanish Galleon. But there's still no wind to carry them to the fight. Fortunately, the Duke is equipped with huge oars called sweeps to be used in emergencies like this. Rogers orders his men to put their backs into it, maneuvering the ship until he feels the first stirring of a breeze. His heart lifts as the sails are raised. As luck would have it, the wind is behind them. They begin to close in on the galleon. There's no rum left. So Rogers orders a kettle of hot chocolate to be prepared for the men. They take a moment too for prayers. But before they have said their amens, the enemy opens fire. The kneeling men Leap up and race to battle stations. Rogers has trained his gun as well. They fire off round after round, his bow guns exchanging fire with the Spanish galleon's stern guns at long range. Gradually, the Duke closes the distance between the two vessels. Rogers' tactic is to take the wind out of the other ship's sails, literally. As his nimble frigate races through the water, the galleon comes to a standstill. With all guns blazing, the Duke fires off a full broadside as she draws level. Meanwhile, Spanish musket fire rains down on the Englishman. Rogers feels a stinging pain in the side of his face, followed by a choking thump as something lodges in the roof of his mouth. His hand goes up to his cheek and comes away drenched in blood. He's been hit. In fact, he's lucky to be alive. The musket-born could have easily been the end of him. Unable to speak, Rogers calls for pen and paper so that he can issue his orders in writing. Under his instructions, the crew carries on the battle, rounding the bow of the galleon, firing broadsides continually. The captain of the other ship knows he's beaten. Rogers' skillful tactics have triumphed over superior size and firepower. The Spanish surrender. Whatever pain Rogers feels from his wound is surely numbed by the elation of his achievement. He has captured a unique prize. He has advanced his country's interests in the war against Spain and secured his place in history. But Woods Rogers is not a man to rest on his laurels. The captured ship is the impressively named Nostra Señora de la Encarnacion de Zengano. From the captured crew, Rogers learns of the existence of a second treasure galleon, twice the size of the Encarnacion. This is the 900 ton Begonia. Rogers is keen to go after the second ship. His proposal is backed by the ship's council. But Rogers' wound is troubling. He writes in his journal, In the night I felt something clog my throat, which I swallowed with much pain, and suppose it was part of my jaw or the shot we can't yet give account of. But I soon recovered myself, only my head and throat being greatly swelled. I have much ado to swallow all sorts of liquid for sustenance, which make me very weak and that I spoke in great pain not loud enough to be heard at any distance. Perhaps out of personal ambition, the council takes advantage of his weakened state and insists that Rogers and the Duke remain in harbour while they take on the greater prize. Despite his misgivings, Rogers must abide by the majority decision. On Boxing Day 1709, the rest of the fleet engaged the galleon. Rogers aboard the Duke can't resist. He disregards the council and goes after them. But by the time he joins the fight, the battle is already lost. The mighty Begonia, with her superior firepower and impregnable hull, proves too much for the smaller vessels. As one of Roger's officers laments, we might as well have fought a castle. It proves a costly failure. The Duchess sustains 20 casualties, many fatal. The Duke is hit by a fireball which causes a store of ammunition to explode. Once again, Woods Rogers is wounded, this time hit in the heel by a flying splinter which takes out part of the bone. The pain is searing. Rogers loses a lot of blood and can no longer stand upright. It's time to return to England and time to take stock, perhaps.
1: Rogers, like many people seeking to become part of the English establishment, keeps deciding to commit his life and his fortune to expeditions that, yeah, might earn him money and stuff, but there would be less risky ways to do so. Hey, I'm going to set up a privateering expedition, and I'm going to circumnavigate the planet and try to attack a Manila galleon. That's not the low-risk strategy for how to make money during a major global war. And certainly, losing his brother and losing his jaw and all the rest was not necessarily a net gain for Roger's maybe in prestige, but not in
0: other things. Frustrating as it is to have the begonia slip through his clutches, Rogers and his men are consoled by the riches stowed on the Encarnacion. Her cargo includes coins, rare spices, and priceless Chinese silk. Perhaps not surprisingly, the division of the spoils soon becomes the source of bitter dispute between the crews and officers, with everyone turning on Woods Rogers. But before anyone can realize their profits, they must make the long voyage home and face the possibility of losing everything.
1: He's on the other side of the planet. So, you know, there's no going back the other way. So he's pretty much committed to a round the world cruise. And once he's captured the Manila Galleon, the fastest way back to England is still to go around the rest of the planet. That's still a very long way, and you can run out of supplies and equipment and everything else. He has all sorts of complications as he's trying to bring this prize through enemy territory and then into neutral territory, right? Into the Dutch settlements and what's now Indonesia, where, you know, what if somebody decides to take that prize from you?
0: As it turns out, that somebody is a ruthless organization arguably as powerful as any nation state. The East India Company. Rogers' return leg takes him across the Indian Ocean, where the British East India Company enjoy a legal monopoly on trade. Put simply, if Rogers engages in any non-essential trade in any port controlled by the company, they will have the right to seize all the proceeds from his voyage. On June 20th, 1710, after an arduous five-month voyage, battered by storms and threatened with starvation, The privateers arrive in Batavia, modern day Jakarta, in Indonesia, where after finally having surgery to remove the Spanish musket ball still lodged in his mouth, Rogers makes the mistake of selling one of the captured ships. As Rogers sails out of Batavia, his reduced fleet is accompanied by six East India Company vessels. The company has been watching, and now has its eyes fixed on the prize. His Prize It will take Woods Rogers' expedition another 16 months to complete his incredible round-the-world voyage. Rogers had long imagined his triumphant return to England. He has pulled off two outstanding achievements, circumnavigation of the globe and capture of a Spanish treasure galleon. Arguably, he can be counted as one of the great heroes of the war against Spain.
1: Long story short, over two years, they succeeded in capturing a small manila galleon. Woods Rogers was injured during the effort to get a manila galleon, had part of his jaw blown off with a musket ball, his brother was killed, his vessel was damaged, they had an incredibly difficult odyssey, circumnavigating the planet, going back through, all the way through the Pacific and Indonesia and the Indian Ocean until he was able to bring this Manila Galleon into the Thames River and place it there as a symbolic triumph and morale boost for English people in that war.
0: A symbolic triumph is all very well, but Rogers does not receive the hero's welcome he had dreamed of. Quite the opposite, in fact. He soon faces legal challenges from his men over the division of plunder and unpaid wages. Not only that, he must see off the claims of the East India Company. Despite recovering an impressive haul of around £150,000 over £20 million today, Rogers' own takings are no more than £1,600. After all that he has risked, it is a disappointing end to his great adventure. To add insult to injury, Rogers discovers that he has been declared bankrupt in his absence. Without his support, his wife has incurred considerable debts. Rogers also faces more personal tragedy. His fourth child is born in August 1712 only to die less than a year later, which is soon followed by the breakup of his marriage. It's a wonder he manages to keep going. But Rogers is not one to wallow in self-pity. Following the example of his friend William Dampier he writes an account of his adventures called A Cruising Voyage Around the World. The book comes out in 1712 and proves to be a great success with a public hungry for seafaring tales. It also goes some way to restoring his reputation and his fortunes. But Rogers is left scarred by his experiences, quite literally. With his finances in ruin, he is already planning his next adventure, this time to Madagascar. Rogers conceives an ambitious scheme to recapture this center of slave trading from the pirates that run riot there. He begins to rally support and raise capital, but the exploits of a gang of pirates in an even wilder and more lawless part of the world will divert him from his planned course. Instead, Fate will lead him to Nassau as the newly appointed governor of the Bahamas on a mission to put an end to the Pirates' reign of terror once and for all. Next week on Real Pirates We rejoin Woods Rogers on his next great adventure the greatest of his career as he sets out to finally free the Caribbean of pirates. As he pulls into the Nassau Harbor in July 1718, he stands on the precipice. What will await him at the notorious pirate port? The pirates know he's coming. Will they finally surrender to the crown? Or will they fight for their freedom? At least one man is determined to live and if necessary, die under the black flag. The infamous Charles Vane. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast. Produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Pexen. Written by Roger Morris. Edited by Rob Plummer and Carla Flores Sound design by Matias Torres-Sole Sound supervisor and mix master by Tom Pink Music by Oliver Baines and Dori McCauley